0: When COVID hit, I challenged the team on a Friday afternoon over a Zoom meeting to develop an oven to use dry heat to inactivate COVID-19 virus on N95 masks. And in six days, we built a working prototype, including building the oven itself out of locally available materials, developing the software to run on a microcontroller, prototyping the heater controls, designing the actual uh, circuit board and manufacturing it, and even making a custom control panel for the LCD user interface and everything. You know, it, it, it just felt like, have you heard the expression, you've been training your whole life for this moment? Well, it, 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 really, it really felt like that.
1: The first time I went to Malawi to work on a digital health project, I asked a local organization about their digital medical records. They said Bebob had built it. We went and talked to the Ministry of Health about how our data could fit into their existing information systems. And they said, make sure it connects to the Baobab Information Exchange. We hired somebody from Malawi to work on our project. Turns out, Baobab alumnus. Then we went to meet the folks who'd built the legacy system that we were gonna replace, also Baobab alum. So here's this local organization that seemed to be able to do basically everything everywhere we turned. It was a mainstay of the digital health scene in Malawi. In today's episode, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Jerry Douglas, the founder of Baobab Health Trust. We'll be hearing the untold story of his career even before he went to Malawi, during the founding and the rise of the Baobab Health Trust. And we'll also dig into his latest great venture, the Global Health Informatics Institute. Before we dive in, a quick administrative note. I'm packing up the microphone for a few weeks before the end of the year. So the next time you'll hear from me will be in 2021. Have a great new year, everyone. And with that, let's get back to the story of Jerry's humble beginnings.
0: Yeah, so I actually was born in England and, and um, did all my, my high school in England. I emigrated to Canada, actually, when I was 19 and um, registered for a electronics program in a community college. And it sort of took off from there, essentially continued on to um, start an undergraduate degree and then left actually halfway through that. And went and worked in industry and so my background essentially was was in aviation uh working huh. yeah working with a large helicopter company in western canada fascinating yeah thanks and so so basically applied my my interest in electronics and my passion for aviation i had been a a pilot I'd got my palace license actually several months before I got my driver's license. Huh. And so was able to kind of combine those two in terms of my work.
1: It's funny that they put you behind a, a plane before they put you behind a car.
0: You know, I had uh, a brother who was willing to kind of drive me anywhere. So I I had no no mm-hmm. n- urgent need to have a driver's license. <laughs> but I had this really strong <laughs> desire to, to fly. So
1: God bless the family members. <laughs> yeah. So you were born from a family and you know, introduced to the aviation space. You're you in industry. You you're working, what inspired you to sign up for mm-hmm. voluntary services overseas?
0: Right. So, so I worked for about six years in the aviation industry, and um, I decided that it wasn't really a career path I wanted to continue in. As much as I loved it, I started to get interested more in computers and computer science. And so at the age of 31, I, I quit my job in avionics, and I went back and, and finished off my, my computer science degree. And then, awesome. Yeah. And I, I just thought it would be really interesting to do an overseas experience. So I, I signed up for VSO. Then I was offered a position in West Africa in Guinea-Bissau. And I was getting ready to go to Portugal for, for Portuguese training. And, and then they told me that that opportunity was no longer available. And then I was offered the, the Malawi uh, position. You know, at the time, I honestly had never heard of Malawi, and so so you know got the got the um, the, the maps out, had a quick look, and then um, the rest is history. Pretty much, yeah.
1: That's wild. I imagine, I mean, things could have turned out so differently had you ended up randomly in, in Guinea-Bissau. It's funny how how life has a way of working out. Very much so. So you know, you're in you're in Malawi. You're doing some work. At some point, in my mental model, like a few years later, this organization appeared. Uh, what are the the gaps? In the middle, what are some of the first steps uh, in which it started to bring together?
0: So when I left Malawi in 97, uh, I didn't return to Canada, I returned to the US, which was is where my wife is from, and didn't have any legitimate immigration status at the time, we weren't married at the time. <laughs> so I got a student visa and I started a master's degree. And... <laughs> started Googling around, well, was Google even around then? I don't know. Started looking on the (laughs) internet for, um, yeah, started looking on the internet. So this was 97, right? Looking for, um, you know, anything related to health and and computers and discovered this field of medical informatics. So, Hmm. so, and it turned out that the university of Pittsburgh had a, a strong informatics program. And so I was able to, to, essentially join um, a master's in information science program and do an area of concentration in medical informatics. And that's kind of where it all started for me to sort of sit in class and think about everything I was learning in the context of the problems I had seen in Malawi and so, you know, I would I would come home every day and 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 tell my wife over dinner, "Hey, what do you think about this? You know, what do you think about uh, trying these these different ideas?" And so it was it was really sort of a concept initially when I would think about the the problems in the concept in the context of these informatics tools that we were learning about, and then mm. and then that essentially progressed into a PhD. And I think after the first year of the PhD, my wife and I decided we would take a trip back to Malawi. So that would have been the first time in three years. And
1: hmm. They really pulled you in there. They, they start really, with the master's and sink I, you with the PhD.
0: I'm telling you, I know. <coughs> um, but thank, thank heavens for scholarships. That's all I can say. So yeah. So, so, so we went back to Malawi and um, I think it was probably late 2000. Is that right? Yeah. And, um, and it was great to reconnect with old friends. It was great to kind of see what was going on in the hospital. But mm-hmm. for me, it was like the first time to really sit down with Malawian colleagues and say, you know, I've been learning about this stuff. What do you, what do you think about this? Do you think this could work? And um, I, I ended up uh, basically staying like another three weeks, I think. So my, my wife went mm-hmm. back on the regularly scheduled flight that we had. I extended. <laughs> and in that three week period, I really kind of crystallized this idea of, of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. You could say that the, the inception of Baobab started with some sketches and notes on a napkin in a, a restaurant in La Longue while I was waiting for a colleague to join me for dinner. And um, <laughs> I, I think somewhere in a file, somewhere in a filing cabinet here, I probably still have that napkin.
1: <laughs> well, bless that colleague for, for being late to that dinner. Yeah. Who knows how things might have gone differently. Exactly. And I think most people, when they're, when they're doing a PhD, you know, like they end up spending most of their time on the PhD. It sounds like you were, you, you kicked off this organization. You know, it wasn't just a piece of code somewhere. You kicked off this organization while you were also pursuing your, your PhD, which it just sounds like a handful, you know, from what I'm hearing.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I, I ended up taking a leave of absence in order to do this initial pilot work in Malawi in 2001. And hmm. I, I think that that was, that was really helpful.
1: Yeah. You mentioned... That, so you, you had these scholarships, so you were sorted in terms of your individual role and studies and, and such. The organization itself, um, how did that, you know, who was the first person that you brought on or the first project that you brought on? At some point, I imagine you needed to invest a little bit more um, in the organization in order for it to take off. Like, where did that initial investment come from apart from the, the scholarships?
0: Right. So, I mean, the scholarships basically just covered my time. There was no, you know, there were no contribution towards the, the projects that we were doing in Malawi.
1: I mean, this was right. large, the nature of scholarships.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I started out with a grant from, from DFID, the Department for International Development, um, the branch of the, of the British government, um, the, I guess the, the British equivalent to USAID. And, hmm. um, I got a, a very small grant of, I think it was 19,750 pounds, which I think at the time came to about $27,000 and we, we, oh, that's tiny we, yeah. today's standard. Yeah. We, we did the per, the first pilot with this. And so the the first pilot, I say, we, I mean, I, w- I went to Malawi with, with, you know, three suitcases full of, of equipment and, um, spent four months essentially, writing software uh, deploying testing rewriting <laughs> yeah and and so 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 i mean that was basically kind of like voluntary effort on my part uh, equipment costs covered travel costs covered and just sub- subsidizing the, the rest of it myself we didn't have any funding for another year and then we we got a, a, another grant uh, jointly funded by DFID and USAID to kind of expand the work that we had done beyond the the pilot site which was really the, the children's department in a, in a large central hospital in Lilongwe in, in the capital. We got it to expand it um, to to other areas of the hospital. and so there were mm-hmm. there were big funding gaps in the middle and essentially, we just funded this with our own our own financial resources, some of it coming from savings, um, some of it just our our, our checks coming in every month and then kind of going out again to to <laughs> to kind of keep this thing going. And yeah. and you know, accrued a pretty large debt. I mean large is a relative term, but at at the peak, probably a hundred thousand dollar debt wow. um to just keep people paid and keep things growing essentially. And eventually, you know, paid that off. But um, but uh, I don't think we would have we would have been able to uh, achieve what we had if we'd have if we'd have depended entirely on, on donor funds that just weren't really there.
1: Yeah. And that that is a lot of debt for for one person to carry. So I think you can you can see in that the the risk. That you took and the, the heart that you were investing in this effort in order to be able to to put your finances on the line that way. Yeah. But I, I do find in in this social sector that we work, unlike the private sector where, you know, there is venture capital to get these small things going. Uh, it's not quite the same, you know. In the social sector, you need a certain amount of credibility before you're going to get the the DFID grants or the USAID grants. Um, so I'm not I'm sure you know better than me, but I don't know if there is a better way in those first few years for for get an organization going, particularly one like Baobab was, which was very much founded in Malawi. Um, I know that was a big part of your your philosophy and approach um, in the creation of the organization. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I think there's yeah. lots of organizations out there, but but I, I really believe Baobab is, is unique in its founding in the way that it's structured in Malawi.
0: Yeah, thanks. I'd, I'd like to think it's different. And we certainly started out with a different model. I had seen in my uh, one year working in Malawi as a volunteer back in 1996, 1997, I'd seen many organizations come in and do projects. And um, those projects did not really last beyond the, you know, the donor funding and and when the the outside team had come in and and kind of given their technical assistance. And I really wanted to try the opposite. And I, I really felt that the opposite was to try and, Build an organization of the people by the people and for the people, and this is this is kind of what Beobab uh, was intended to be. And I, I think largely we, we we managed to achieve that. So we we started off very small to launch our initial pilot of a small touchscreen-based system in a pediatric department in a in a large central hospital in Longway, and, and this was really. To test this idea, really, of could we get non computer proficient healthcare workers to engage with technology? at the point of care at that time when they're they're working with the patient and and really see could we provide these you know this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow right these <laughs> these uh, these decision support features that you really only get when you have the 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 healthcare worker and the patient and the technology all working kind of at the same time and so so this was you know this was the um, the vision as it were and and I, I think you know as we as we grew we we sort of plateaued at a point where we were able to kind of demonstrate that and then you know some something sort of happened I guess and and to some degree I I, I think of monitoring and evaluation as as you know. This double edged sword. So, the, the benefit of the investment is that it's really reduced this barrier. But the, the downside of the investment is that we've, we've sort of framed health IT around data collection. And, and I don't think that that's where the true, the true mm. win is. And, and I think we've largely, I say we, the community as a whole. And donor investment has largely focused on um, building electronic tools, which are optimized for collecting, monitoring, and evaluation data. And, and I, I, I fundamentally disagree with this, honestly. If you think about um, this idea of giving a healthcare worker a piece of technology to work with, it's you know we can do it in a way that is consistent with kind of the values and objectives of healthcare professionals, right? Which is to, to do their job and provide healthcare. But what we tend to do is we tend to put a piece of technology on their desk and we ask them to become data entry clerks, right? Well, I, I, never, I, I never met a doctor. <laughs> so yeah, I never met a doctor or a nurse who enjoys doing data entry. And, 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 and many <laughs> of these M&E systems you know, that we, we ask healthcare workers to use are simply cumbersome and time-consuming. And so, so I mean, I, I think it's, you know, our philosophy, the Baobab philosophy, which I believe in 110%, and I just, I think maybe, you know, the time wasn't right for us, and maybe it's still not quite there, but this philosophy is really to think orthogonally, right, to, to focus not on the data, but on the process. And if you want better data, I think you have to improve the process that generates the data and like tightly couple this to the, the way, way that people work. If there's a value proposition for the healthcare worker that creates this kind of missing desirability component for the tech, then I, I really think you've, you've kind of won, right? That I think the single biggest challenge we have is not the technology. It's getting the healthcare workers to, to want to use the the technology,
1: right?
0: Mm. One analogy would be if if you think about pre cell phones, when when we're driving from A to B, we used to have these GPSs in our car these these four inch displays that we'd stick on the window, and it would be a moving map that shows us where we want to go. And we sort of think of this as a as a as a digital job aid. If I'm a driver, I'm driving somewhere, and this is helping me do my job. But but cl- clearly mm-hmm. that GPS is collecting a ton of data, right? It knows. Where you are, when you are, how you got there, um, how fast you drove getting there, if you stopped on the way. There's a million data points that you can derive from this digital job aid that are separated from these, this process benefit that you you get. And if you were to ask a, uh, you know, a commercial driver, what does this tool do? He wouldn't say it's a data collection tool. He would say, this helps <laughs> me achieve my job. If we can build a GPS for healthcare workers that helps them navigate the healthcare system and collects data as a transparent byproduct of system use, then we're done. I mean, that is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And really, that was the ethos that we we sort of tried to generate with Bayou. Babi- and is there,
1: would you say there is at any point in time, any uh, obstacles that stood in your way as you were building this organization, you know, like people or projects that might have hoped that you would not succeed?
0: Um, wow. <clears throat> Going for the jugular here. Right? Um, <laughs> I mean, it um, happens with
1: every organization. So
0: sure, sure. I mean, I I, I, I think it's a hard um, nut to crack. So I mean, this, We. I think we could talk for an hour just on this on this one question. <laughs> but the I always joke with people that we, we, we say when we talk about things, we say it's not rocket science. But um, we, we, we put a man on the moon like decades ago, but we still don't have any single country in Africa that has a comprehensive electronic medical record system. So I would, mm-hmm. I would say it's probably harder than rocket science um, <laughs> to, to some degree. And then there's a naivete that I certainly had, and I, I think is shared by many people who come into this space, which is that the challenges are technical, and I, I don't think the challenges are technical. I think largely mm. we've solved all those technical challenges now. When you're working with a host government, like whether it's the government of Malawi or any other country, and you're working with the Ministry of Health, you need to have kind of a shared technical vocabulary to be able to have a discussion about what the future looks like. And that that shared vocabulary has to include you know, concepts about Things like systems thinking and interop- interoperability, um, and and um, even the social <laughs> science aspect of, of the work. Right? How do we how do we put people first, and so on. And I think that that is largely not there. It certainly wasn't there twenty years ago. It's probably more so there now. But I think this is one big obstacle.
1: Right. And you're talking there about making sure that uh, you and the, like the work that you're trying to do aligns with what the government is wanting to do. And, and part of the challenge there is that there might not even be a policy or a position on something like interoperability from the government of Malawi. Is that, right. does that right. summarize it?
0: Yeah, um, it, to a large degree it does, but let me let me frame it in the context of these, these two sort of famous quotes now, right? So Henry mm-hmm. Ford said, when he asked his customers what they wanted, they said they wanted a faster horse, and um, <laughs> and the, the the point being that they couldn't conceive the idea of the automobile because it was just mm. outside of their scope of thinking. Um, mm. I, th- I think Steve in two thousand and eight, Steve Jobs said, uh, people didn't know they needed an iPhone until we built it for them.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, one thing that I find interesting, just even on that front, which took me a while to realize, is that thankfully there are some. Individuals, you know, in, in all these, in all of our governments, that are are forward-looking, they're looking for change in the future and how things can be better. Um, and there's a lot of individuals whose work involves minimizing risk, you know, making sure that the things that function don't fail, and there isn't a big. Public disaster. You know the government doesn't take a lot of heat, particularly before an election. Uh, and approaching approaching health systems with a with a risk taking versus a risk minimization framework makes a big difference. Not just in the technology side, uh, but in general in terms of process change and all these things that we're that we're trying to do um, as we make these systems run better.
0: Yeah, I agree. When we look at transitions between um, governments and we see, you know, these four-year cycles, whether it's in the U.S. or in, in Africa, um, basically people want to leave their mark during the time that they're, that they have the power to, to move the needle on something. And so there's also mm-hmm. a tendency to want to um, move very quickly. And I think, I think there's a, there's an inherent viscosity in this kind of work, right? That, that It takes time for people to understand what's going on, to adapt to that. And then, based on the adaptation, for the new, the next layer of problems to reveal themselves. For which you then need to address those and create solutions for those and so on. So, mm-hmm. so when you when you try to do something very very quickly, I think you're doomed to fail. And you know, so the the, um, the 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 sort of classic analogy when we think about hospital information systems is everybody wants to do what we call the big bang implementation, right? They they want yeah. to go from from nothing to a fully computerized hospital in three months or even six months. Uh, Hmm. When it it takes years, right? If it's it's done in a systematic way. So we're fighting that we're finding we're fighting donor funding cycles where they say this is a two year grant and you need to achieve this in two years. And we're we're fighting, you know, this um, desire to invest in things that will have a short term return on investment, when what we really need is things that have a long term return on investment, like infrastructure, we need to build infrastructure. And when we, when we, you know, try, I remember a conversation with, um, with a a senior person in the planning department at the Ministry of Health and Population back in 2002, where I said, you know, Malawi needs uh, patient identifiers, we cannot do continuity of care if we don't have patient identifiers. And, you know, that that was a problem that they said, this is too big for us to tackle. We can't tackle that. When I went to donors, donors basically said, you know what? We fund HIV. We fund TB. We fund malaria. We don't fund infrastructure. Well, That's maybe, maybe they should, right? And, and you know, I- Maybe I, they I, should. I really tried to make the case to say, um, you want to fund HIV, well, how, how do you expect to have continuity of care for your HIV patients if we can't uniquely identify them, right? So, you know, maybe a fraction of the HIV budget and a fraction of the TB budget and a fraction of the malaria budget needs to go into funding infrastructure,
1: and I appreciate you putting that out there as a as a call to action. You know, the idea of investing in infrastructure, it just makes it makes so much sense, you know, because it's one of those things that lifts up all the different technology or, or health interventions out there. How did you make it work for Baobab? You know, you're working against these cycles, uh, but Baobab has been around for many years. Uh how did you overcome uh the challenge of the funding cycles?
0: Good question. Um you know largely funding for babab i think babab has had in the 20 years about 40 something million dollars of funding over 20 years and
1: wow.
0: 30 something 32 34 million has come from the US centers for disease control and prevention uh, hmm. lar- largely to address the you know the, the, the monitoring and evaluation challenge around hiv care and treatment and so to a large degree, Baobab, you know, from 2007 onward, had a pretty sustained stream of funding coming from, from CDC, essentially.
1: That's great. One of the other things I wanted to highlight about Baobab Health Trust in particular, which I always found fascinating, is that I have the sense the organization is a bit more proficient with hardware than many of the organizations in the space. Um, I, I think many of our listeners know of the innovative work you've done with touchscreens. Uh, what right. do you think about the organization that makes it able to experiment in a space that I think many of the other folks that we've spoken to have not been able to?
0: Yeah. My interest in um, electronics and uh, communications and software and mechanical engineering and just science in general was sort of created this learning environment within Baobab, even when we were a very small team. And we we just kind of perpetuated that the desire to keep costs low. And it wasn't just a desire. I mean, it was a reality. We had very little funding. Mm. And, you know, I, I think I kept eBay in business, basically, because, um, <laughs> you know, we 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 literally did, you know, we you, you you know what what innovation is like right you don't have one good idea try it and it works you 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 get it on the on the yeah the 10th or the 20th try and so what touchscreen computer do we want to use what thermal label printer do we want to use i mean you can't go out and buy new parts and say well that didn't work you know so just buying stuff on ebay trying it, reselling it if we didn't need it if ebay hadn't been there i'm not sure we could have done what we did honestly and so mm. with the with the touchscreens, I mean, this was really part of my core philosophy that I really wanted to I really wanted to adhere to this idea of doctor plus computer greater than doctor alone. And so so what that mm. meant is that the, the doctor has to have the computer, right? You can't give the computer to the clerk and expect the doctor to benefit from that. So it's really this point of care approach that we talk about, where the technology, the patient, and the doctor are all in the room at the same time, and the doctor's using the technology. And mm-hmm. so so I was just averse to having a mouse and keyboard in there. I felt like this is not going to work when the majority of health providers have literally never used a computer before back, back in 2000, Right. And um, it just seemed like touchscreen was, was the easiest way to go. Touchscreen
1: makes so much sense to me for someone who is not already familiar with a computer. You know, if you've, if, if, I'd love to share with our audience, you know, the, the videos of Xerox Park when they first tried out mouses and, you know, how these users would tick the mouse on the screen and they would, you know, like hold them in their hands and wave them about. And it, was, it is actually crazy and unintuitive the way that mice and keyboards work um, and I've seen the videos of just how how fast and how efficient uh, users have been of the the Beabab health trust system um so maybe we don't have maybe it doesn't make sense to have some fancy new hardware solution for ninety nine percent of the challenges that we face, but, but that particular intervention has made a big difference in terms of the the speed of data entry and the quality of data capture um in the health systems okay. that i'm familiar with
0: you know the the touchscreen also is it's just another sort of component in this idea of creating an information appliance. So I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Donald Norman. Um, he wrote a book called the invisible computer. The, the, and the premise is that the computer is successful when it disappears, right. When it's no longer perceived to be a computer. Right. So they, the, the, mm. the, the idea is that the, the laptop and the desktop are, Uh, computers are a jack of all trades, but master of none. So if you wanted to say, well, what what hardware do I need to play video games on really, really well, you'd create an Xbox, right? If you wanted (laughs) a device that you could, you know, a computer that you could use to talk to people, you'd create an iPhone. And so all these derivative products are really appliances um, where the parent really is just the, you know, the computer. Uh, the, the desktop or, or laptop computer. And so, so you know, the, the idea of this, what we call uh, touchscreen clinical workstation appliance is that it is an appliance. It's, it's designed to do one thing really, really well. We don't want healthcare workers to be listening to music or on Facebook or editing their CV for the next job. We want them to be focusing on the clinical work. And if they want to do those other things, then they can go and find a desktop or a laptop somewhere to do that on, so we, we really want that, but but we I really yeah. like that
1: metaphor the idea of a, of a te- health information technology as an appliance, the way the chair is an appliance it does one thing and it right. does it really well.
0: Right. Charlie Saffron conceived this idea of the clinical workstation, a dedicated computer, back in the 90s that would just be used for clinical purposes. And we just augmented that essentially by throwing a touchscreen on it and and making it kind of an appliance computer. And so, you know, part part, part of the, the appliance idea is really this idea that we want this device to be inexpensive. So why pay for parts you don't need? Why pay for a huge screen? Why pay for speakers? Why pay for a CD-ROM? Um, we want it to be super low power because we know it's gonna run in sites that have uh, frequent power outages. So they're gonna need to have a power backup and we want it to last as long as it can. Um, power also costs money. Someone has to pay for it, right? So let's keep it uh, cheap. And we, we want to have um, a device that has a low total cost of ownership. So not just the initial investment cost. So so what are some of these other costs that come in? Well, they're, they're maintenance and repair costs, to replace a keyboard when it when someone spilled their coffee in it, or replace a mouse because it's just full of dirt, or replace a, a hard drive because it failed, or replace a power supply because the fan got so full of dust that it literally stopped spinning and the power oh. supply overheated, right? So so there's a lot of engineering concepts that go into this idea of an appliance that turns it into a largely solid state device.
1: Hmm. And and I like there that you're, you're thinking about all the different factors of usage down to power consumption. Power consumption is something that is is so often overlooked. People are like, okay, well, we'll get a solar panel later in the project. Um, Whereas you're measuring that and you're optimizing that even in the, in the early stages of your intervention. Jerry, we're running a little bit low on time. I'm going to ask you two more questions, sure. uh, and then we'll switch over to the the rapid fire um, section. My my first question for you is: if you if you had a time machine and you could go back and change one thing related to your work in health IT, what do you think it would be?
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I can say around uh, 2008 2009 when we we, we started building. And scaling out the electronic medical record system for, for uh, the Ministry of Health in Malawi, particularly around HIV care and treatment, we, we really kind of followed um, the guidance that we were given from the Ministry of Health in terms of what they wanted the system to do. And ultimately, they wanted the system to create a set of reports, what they call quarterly cohort reports, that would be used to assess you know, to, to monitor and evaluate essentially the success of the program. And we we followed kind of along those lines and um, and produced kind of what they wanted, what they asked us to do. And then a couple of years later, we started working in a different space. We started working in non-communicable diseases around diabetes and hypertension. And we, we started to build a similar system and, and realized that we couldn't easily kind of modify what we had previously done. We started sort of from scratch again, and 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 then a year after that, we started working in in uh, antenatal care, and we realized that we were reinventing the wheel again. That we hadn't built hmm. something that was extensible to a large degree. And when we when we sort of look back retrospectively, I think for me at least, I realized that. I hadn't really kind of asked the right questions. I, I'd been I'd been told that we needed these mm-hmm. cohort reports, but I didn't understand why. I didn't understand what they used the cohort reports for. And so once I once I understood that you know they did supply chain based on you know how many patients they have on specific regimens, they'll decide how many boxes of medicine for of each regimen to to order. And, um, and and yeah, I sort of came to the conclusion, essentially, that, you know, we had taken this vertical approach that we picked a disease and we sort of built a piece of software that worked well for that disease. But when you start putting these diseases side by side, you know, and you look at these vertical things that you've created, if you think about the cross-cutting components, it was very clear that they all had a patient identification component. They all mm-hmm. had something around lab you know, whether it's a CD4 test or viral load for HIV, um, uh, you know, in TB, there's tests in, in uh, you know, blood glucose uh, tests for diabetes and hypertension, things like this. Mm-hmm. And, and they all had a prescribing component, right? You, you need to prescribe the antiretrovirals, you need to prescribe the, the diabetes and hypertension medications. Antenatal uh, mothers are expecting they need a certain, you know, uh, three pack of certain vitamins or something like this. And, and really, I sort of had this epiphany that we did it wrong. We, we, we should have gone that extra mile to really understand the sort of broader uh, cross-cutting elements. And I, I think if we had, if I could go back to 2007 now and, and sort of have a do-over, we should have, we should have built um, a basically national um, laboratory information system we should have built electronic prescribing and dispensing systems that weren't limited to HIV specifically, but were generalizable. And And I'm, I'm happy to say the one thing we did right was that we did have this standardized national patient ID approach, which we'd started in 2001 and being able Mm -hmm. to gradually kind of build on as we went. If I could go back to 2008, this is what we would do. And I I had this epiphany in 2015, and and that literally changed the direction for me. So I all have really worked on since 2015 is lab and pharmacy.
1: That's that's fascinating, and I think that's really important for you to share. That you know, there's something about having worked in all those different systems and understanding the nuts and bolts of of what you have built that can derive that kind of insight. Uh, and maybe it's something that other other listeners to this podcast might might draw inspiration from, particularly when we talk about one-off applications versus more reusable, more scalable, more cost-effective components for a health system. That's fascinating. The last question I had for you, Jerry, was I know that uh, you've, in, in the years uh, since you, know, you founded and created Baobab, um, you've taken a step back uh, from Baobab and have taken on a variety of different ventures. Uh, the one I'm most familiar with is the Global Health Informatics Institute. Could you talk a bit about the Global Health Informatics Institute? Uh, you know, What is it from Baobab that might have inspired it? And if there's any way in which you hope that this institute is, does better even than uh, your work with <clears> Baobab?
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, I guess it was around 2016. I started to see what I perceived to be a growing gap between some donors and the Ministry of Health in Malawi, like they were no longer on the same page, essentially. And I felt like I had ideas on how to bridge that gap, but we really needed evidence about the benefits of health IT and you know, evidence that would help guide decisions about investments. And frankly, we we really didn't have it. So I decided to pivot at that point and really try and focus on helping to build that body of evidence and train others on how to do that kind of along the way. And so this is really where the idea of the Global Health Informatics Institute came from. And Mm. I think, you know, there's a famous expression um, if you build it, they will come. So this is this is, this is kind of what we, we did with GHII. We we broke ground on the new training center in the in 2017, and it was it was really a big leap of faith. But you know the timing was was okay financially. It was okay. I had just managed to pay off a hundred thousand dollar debt that we would accrued over several years building Baobab and, and kind of keeping it running. And I you know, I hadn't really anticipated what the true cost of building the training center was going to be. It it came in just over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow. And 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 you know even pouring my paycheck in every month, we still ended up with a hundred thousand dollar debt with the bank. So back to back to a hundred thousand dollar debt again. <laughs> I Which mean happens-
1: it's a serious undertaking there.
0: Yeah, it, it, exactly and so we're gradually paying this off slowly but you know, that said, I, I feel like this, this personal investment has really been worthwhile. I feel like we've moved the needle um, more in the past couple of years than I had managed to do in the in the ten years before that. And
1: and, and when you talk about the, the Informatics Institute, do you see its mission as as primarily one of training and capacity building? Or is it focused on on research and identifying some of those gaps that you talked about, or is it both?
0: Well I would say when we first started out, it was really focusing on the, the research and capacity building component, but it's it's kind of really gone beyond that. So so we have basically this innovation culture. Within our team, that <laughs> makes you want to really get out of bed every morning and be part of something truly important. We've, we've created awesome. this, yeah, we've created this, this product development culture, and really all the tools that you need to take a concept from a sketch on a whiteboard to a working prototype in in just a matter of days. Let <laughs> let, 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 let me give you an example. When 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 COVID hit. I challenged the team on a Friday afternoon over a Zoom meeting, since I was back in the States at that point, to Mm -hmm. develop an oven to use dry heat to inactivate COVID-19 virus on N95 masks. And in just six days, yeah, I mean, this was a a really, you know, this was a whole new area for us, but we we had those skills. And in six days, we built a working prototype, including... Yeah, including like building the oven itself out of locally available materials, developing the software to run on a microcontroller, prototyping the heater controls, designing the actual uh, circuit board and manufacturing it, and and even making a custom control panel for the LCD user interface and everything. So, wow. you know, it, it, it just felt like. Have you heard the expression "You've been training your whole life for this moment"? Well, it <laughs> it, it really it really felt like that. It was. <laughs> Super rewarding, yeah. yeah to see the I have to imagine,
1: team. I have to imagine a bit of that—that uh, that innovators banter, that ability to like get in the hardware and figure out how to do something that hasn't happened before—draws from your past experience. You know, you've you've been there before, you've done this, and now you can share that with the 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 team of people that you're training up, that you're that you're building the capacity of in Malawi.
0: I think that's largely true, and I think this whole idea of being kind of like a multidisciplinary you know, person and and having that diverse background helps a lot. But, but one thing I've really observed is that, you know, there's a culture in Africa of fixing things. And that comes out of necessity. But, you know, we, we have an amazing team, honestly, we have we have one person who works with us, we call him the bush mechanic, because he can literally <laughs> fix anything. And, you know, he will lay awake at night trying to figure out how to, you know, uh, fix something. And the next day he he's kind of got it working. So, I mean, huh. it's, 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 sort of like this, this, um, critical mass of bringing together, you know, African ingenuity, um, resources and vision that I think is, is, is makes it just gives us a great feeling that we're moving in the right direction, essentially.
1: Nice. And I, and I like how you're talking about that aspect of, of problem solving and how it gives this team of people an edge. You know, it's it's definitely true for, for my community in Canada. If, if something breaks, you kind of wonder, okay, who do I call? Who do I pay to fix it? It's never, you know, <laughs> right. let's, let's get in there and like, see what's going on in there. Anything else that you wanted to add, Jerry?
0: Just in terms of GHII, you know, GHII has really evolved beyond informatics to really developing solutions at the intersection of science, engineering, and global health. I mean, that's what it says on our website, and that's kind of what we do. And certainly Mm. informatics is a big part of that, but we're increasingly tackling a much wider variety of problems. And and we we call these service learning problems because we're essentially providing a service to the Malawi Ministry of Health to tackle important problems in, in healthcare in Malawi. But at the same time, we're giving young graduate interns Opportunities to get that kind of much-needed experience they need for their CV. You know they're fresh mm-hmm. out of college and it's really hard to get a job. Um, mm-hmm. So you can you can see examples of these service learning projects on the on the GHII website. And I, I, I really feel like this is a win-win in terms of aid and development. We're we're currently poised to launch our first social enterprise in 2021, and I oh, really? Really hope yeah I really hope this will be the first of many. So we'll see how what it goes. Is it?
1: You, you um, have to give us a bit of a preview, Jared.
0: <laughs> no, you have to wait and see. <laughs> no, ah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just kidding. That's the next okay. interview. No, I'll tell <laughs> you. So, so we had um several months ago, you know, spurred by the COVID pandemic, we had launched a website called openo2.org. And mm. really the idea behind OpenO2 is to democratize the maintenance and potentially even manufacturing of oxygen concentrators, these medical devices that are used to essentially remove nitrogen from room air, giving you almost pure oxygen. And and as much as, you know, COVID patients need this, the the developing world really needs this. Pneumonia is one of the leading causes of death in in under five children in, in Africa, in the developing world, I guess. And uh, oxygen huh. is the is key treatment for that. So, so Open 2 Mobile is, is essentially, we're going on the road and, and um, we're, we put the small team together. We're buying a, a Toyota coaster minibus that we're converting into a mobile workshop. And we plan huh. to tour all the health facilities in Malawi. There's roughly 100 that um, use oxygen concentrators. So it's really kind of like a uh, maintenance and repair program. Uh, we come to you kind of thing.
1: That's awesome. That's great. And, and I imagine it's the kind of expertise that's quite hard to find, particularly in, in all those different hospitals, because many of them are, are very rural. Um, so having, having an organization that will, will come to you and will provide this pretty complex technical repair service sounds like one that it will be really important, both for the pandemic response and also, as you mentioned, for, for pneumonia, which Malawi is, is dealing with every day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a secondary component is that, you know, we carry spares with us and some of the spares we even make ourselves in our own, you know, uh, fabrication lab at GHII. So there there's sort of many facets to this that sort of bring it together to be what I hope to be a successful um, social enterprise.
1: Awesome. Jerry, I think we could do a, a whole other episode on the ins and outs of a, of an oxygen concentrator startup uh, organization, but we'll leave that for another time. That's fascinating. We're gonna move on to just a few final questions as part of our, our rapid fire session. Um, looking looking back over the course of your career, do you have any advice that you give um, to other young professionals who are looking to make a difference in the world?
0: Yeah, it's really important to have a good mentor and and basically you need someone you can trust use their time wisely. Don't abuse it. Don't just take their advice blindly, but learn how they think and, and how they think about problem solving and, and start to apply those processes yourself. I think So I think this is really important to find, find that person. And it's not easy, um, but um, if you can find a good person, sort of hang on to them.
1: Great advice, Jerry. The next question, Jerry, I wanted to ask you uh, was about if you, there's any message that you would like to share for donors or policymakers that might be listening to this podcast,
0: yeah, I think we have this three-way relationship typically between the donor, the host country, and implementing partners who who build and deploy these these technology platforms, if you will. And I think these lines of communication and decision making are not always optimal, to say the least. I'm I'm really concerned about this significant amount of hype that I perceive from, from some implementers about their solutions and hmm. what I perceive to be a lack of due diligence on the part of donors and recipient countries to really kind of dig through that. And, you know, <clears throat> I've seen a lot of beautiful PowerPoint presentations, and <laughs> it's very compelling, but it's just that. It's just a PowerPoint. It's not evidence. Um, doesn't matter how beautiful the graphs are. I think we need, to, we need to get that evidence. And if, if we don't have the evidence, we need, to, we need to create the evidence before we think about things like a national scale up. And, and, and it, you know, a lot of it is just about using common sense and always being willing to be the person who points out the elephant in the room when nobody else wants to, to ask the hard questions. <laughs> So, so right now I'm I'm teaching an online informatics course with a team from the Liberia Ministry of Health, and today, today's lecture is actually about design reality gaps. This framework from uh, Richard Heeks from the University of Manchester, which has been around I think since I want I would say the '90s maybe the mid '90s, and and this is a, a great very simple tool that just sort of analyzes the size of this incremental jump that we expect people to make from what's currently in place to what's being proposed. And and I, I really believe that we need these added levels of, of due diligence.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Jerry. Um, the next quick question for you um, is whether there's a, a common implementation mistake uh, that you might suggest for someone doing one of these digital health projects and maybe a corresponding fix.
0: Not sure about the fix, but anyway. <laughs> um, so, so I've seen many implementers who build systems pay users to use those systems. I've seen it happen so much, and I, I really think it undermines um, the entire system. So, so you know, p- paying users to use an information system or providing you know unsustainable incentives of any kind, I think is just is just bad. We 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 think about if we think about um, these tools that we build as products, whether it's a a toaster, a toothbrush, or a car, you know, we think about it in a product development framework. We we you know, there's there's sort of one school of thought that says that the perfect product sits where it sits at the intersection of these three things: feasibility. So, does it work? Mm -hmm. Viability, meaning is there? I don't want to say a business model behind it, but is there a financial feasibility, if you will. Um, So, so can, could I continue to do this? Could I continue to use this uh, and afford to do it beyond the scope of maybe some initial donor investment? And then the last uh, third leg of the stool is really desirability. So it's this, it's this idea of value proposition for the user. (laughs) If we pay users to use the systems that we've built, then we can't really assess the user desirability essentially. So we don't really know what's going to happen when we stop paying these top ups to the users. Yeah. And I mean, this logic is not rocket science, right? But <laughs> it, it just frustrates me that implementers and donors all seem willing to pay system people to use the systems, but inevitably what happens when they stop paying?
1: <laughs> Agreed. It's a it's a false marketplace. It skews the natural incentives for the system.
0: And it prevents you from seeing the gaps in your system. So you can't even iterate. You can't move to close those gaps if those gaps are hidden from you.
1: My last question for you, Jerry, is whether you could recommend a book, a blog, a podcast, either related to this work um, or just from personal interest for our readers.
0: Sure. Um, so I think a book that everyone who works in development needs to read is called Geek Heresy by Kantero Toyama. and. You know, he, he basically talks about this idea that many, many technology solutions are sort of ill-conceived. So his book kind of unpacks this series of problems over the past 10 years where people have deployed systems with certain expectations, but they haven't really met those expectations. I think the main premise of his book is really just to say that technology cannot fix problems. It just amplifies the intent of the people using the technology. So I, w- I would highly recommend that book. I, I, don't, I don't read a lot, but I, I listen to audiobooks. So um, <laughs> I, I listen to that on audio. And then another book that I listened to about a year ago is the story of the Wright brothers. And it's so inspiring, maybe partly because I have a background in aviation, but <laughs> mostly because it's just this great example of innovation. Try, fail, try again, fail, use your data to come up with <laughs> new ideas, right? And um, we, we need to create this kind of learning environment in the developing world to foster this ethos. I'll
1: have to give that book a read. Thanks so much, Jerry, for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it. If anyone in our audience wants to find out more about you or your work, is there anywhere in particular that you'd invite them to find out more?
0: They can go to ghii.org and see what we're doing at the Global Health Informatics Institute.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find out more information by downloading our show notes on the website at aidevolved.com. That's also where you can subscribe to the newsletter so that you get notified immediately when new episodes come out. Stay safe. Have a great new year, everyone. I'll see you in 2021.